Hello everyone, it's May 23rd, 2023. Well, Blue Origin is back with an HLS award. They have a redesigned lander that looks pretty cool. They went back to the drawing board and redrew a whole new system that's single stage and doesn't require a fire engine ladder for egress. So let's get back to the moon and into the details and lift off. In with the Tower, welcome to episode 410 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So you want to tell us about a rock? Yeah, we had a lot of really cool news that happened this week. And not even making a short and sweeter the main news story, we've got the rock, right? The world's biggest airplane, uh, Strata Launch, actually did a drop test for Talon, the, the hypersonic vehicle. And so I think they had done just like a, a, a captive carry test, I don't know, last year, at some point in the past, maybe last year. But yeah. Now they've they they went and actually flew it, and so it looks like it is going to be a hypersonic test bed, which is really cool and something that if you talk to military types, they tell you about how the U.S. is stressing out about you know losing ground in hypersonics to you know some of our adversaries, and so yeah, I don't know, I wouldn't have thought that Rock would have turned out to be you know potentially such a helpful and valuable vehicle because it sounded like right the original idea for it to be horizontal launch kind of went under and to see it kind of resurrected like that in this whole different test bed is pretty cool yeah so this is still the biggest airplane ever right i believe so i think because right you could you could kind of split how you define the size of an airplane but i think now (laughs) rock helpfully kind of i think put the kibosh on that sort of back and forth it's just i mean it's there's longer airplanes but its wingspan is dramatic uh, to say the least. Wikipedia has a great comparison image that they, I remember even seeing this comparison image before Rock was built or flew. And so you could see like the Spruce Goose and some other kind of mm. legendary uh, aircraft on there. But so actually, it's impressive how big the Spruce Goose was for mm-hmm. yeah. how old that plane is. Right. Yeah. Nothing unimpressive about Spruce Goose. <laughs> but also, I mean, I think, I don't know, like I feel like just, I, I imagine... Most people listening know exactly what we're referring to, but just to be clear, right? Strat- Rock is the is Stratolaunch's plane that has like the dual fuselage, and it can kind of hang something in between the two, and so it's that sort of style. So it's it's not only gigantic, but it's also a really cool looking aircraft. <laughs> Blue Origin wins an HLS contract. I don't know if that's surprising, but how do you guys feel about it? (laughs) Not at all surprising. No, no, no. So this is um, Appendix P for Next Step. And uh, which one was the source selection for um, Starship? Was that H? Okay. So we've we've added a number of appendices since then. There will be a link in the show notes to the um, the source selection statement. It is 11 pages long, uh, which made for much uh, more relaxed <laughs> reading <laughs> than um, uh, Appendix H. But so, right, uh, Blue Origin um, won this second uh, contract. Um, just to remind you... Um, SpaceX's Starship won uh, Appendix H, and then they also got uh, Option B, um, which means that they got uh, additional missions tacked on uh, to their Appendix H award. And so now four people competed, and Blue Origin won. Uh, their lander is still called Blue Moon, uh, but this is a revised uh, version of the Blue Moon Lander. Uh, it has a dry mass of 16 metric tons, and its wet mass is greater than 45 metric tons. I don't know 
why we didn't get an exact number on that one. And the thing is 16 meters tall compared to Starship's 120 meters of height. This new version, so the, the first Blue Moon lander looked like a giant Apollo uh, lem, right? Like, did it look like that to you guys too? Like, it just, it felt mm-hmm. like a lem. Even the arrangement of the tanks were lem-like. Yeah. And like four legs. I mean, like all these things are like very mm-hmm. standard things that you want to do. But it, it was like a lem with with a uh, space station module strapped on top. And it was a two-stage kind of thing. Um, this new version is a single stage to orbit uh, design. And it uses this lovely tanks on top architecture uh, where the people are at the very bottom, which is one of the things that was going to be tough with the the first version was like you've got a very long ladder to navigate up and down and god forbid somebody gets hurt and you have to carry them up this ladder and so now they have put the tanks on top and the people are on the bottom and so it's much easier to access the surface um it's going to use uh, a be3u hydrogen uh engine to get out to the moon. Uh, and then it's going to use a BE seven dual expander hydrogen engine to land. Yeah. So it's, it's like this fully reusable, uh, lovely modern design. I feel like the, the two stage LEM design is a little, I don't know, not outdated, uh, but it just, it feels a little old and it's really cool to see them move to an SSO and say that they can actually, uh, accomplish this as a lander. Also, I real quick, before we go on, I want to point out that this feels like it's a response to Starship. I don't know how I feel about that. And I'd like to get you guys to weigh in real quick because it's much smaller than Starship. It has a lot less fuel, a lot less mass capability, but going from a two stage to a one stage, from a partially reusable to a fully reusable, um, seems like a real drastic reply. And, and I don't know if I'm judging that correctly. What do you guys think? My, uh, my take is that maybe they just saw that Dynetics's contribution to both H in round one and Appendix P, the current one, both times, right, they've got this, one of the positives is that the crew is very low to the ground. And so maybe Blue just wanted to redesign that way. And if you're going to do that, then you can't really do the two-stage thing anymore, or at least not like you would for an Apollo type. Yeah, it gets tougher, doesn't it? Yeah, so yeah. maybe maybe that was you know wanting to bring the the, the crew closer to the ground, and then it just kind of naturally led its way lent its way to a, a a single stage one, as opposed to just trying to follow what made Star uh, uh, Starship successful. And that's an interesting way to approach this, uh, just in your head, because Starship also suffers from the issue of it not being super accessible to the ground. Like it is much taller <laughs> and like they're going to have a crane to get people out but you know because it's got a, a larger cargo capability you know you could include a crane like a motorized crane and it seems like a little less less of a constraint but mm-hmm. i i do appreciate the idea that yeah putting people on the bottom as your first step kind of leads to this as a as a finished product i hadn't really thought along those lines you know as this being a response to starship yeah i was curious to know what why you thought that and you said it's just because it's a single stage to orbit and it's lower to the grounds like you get lower access for the astronauts and that's a concern with starship and that's basically it i mean yeah um, i mean i kind of okay i started with the it's a tall 
single stage vehicle, which feels very starshipy. And then it, to me, it kind of felt like, and more than that, we've got the people on the bottom. And it's just like, <laughs> yeah. okay, all right. Okay. We get it. But no, I think, I think Dennis has totally convinced me that, that that is a, a, a good way to look at this. And I think it, that could well be a true, a true way that this actually played out internally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would like to know what their explanation is for why they made the changes that they did. And I, and I would, you know, nah. I don't think that would be, <laughs> yeah, I don't think that would be productive because of course they're going to say, well, they're, all these changes are better, so we made them. And it's like, well, okay, but can you actually answer the question? And no, they won't. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, yeah, they're yeah, they're definitely never going to answer it. But I mean, this this crew compartment looks huge because it, it's not super tall, but it is very big around, rather than like yeah. the little like Vienna sausage. Uh, of the first version this is like this is a can like a tuna can uh, mm-hmm. I, I think it looks pretty good they all the, the artist renders which who knows how much of the artist render is going to actually be represented in the final product but the artist render it looks really cool it's got these two giant windows cool. that are like tilted down towards the surface like it looks lovely mm-hmm. yeah i like the style too and it looks like are those uh, uh radiators that kind of i guess it looks like they would be able to extend out like pedals towards the top of the vehicle. It's got to be, right? Because they, they don't look like FOD shields or anything. They'd be pretty pretty crappy. And I don't see any RCS thrusters nearby that they would be shielding against. And it really does look like they are on articulating arms. I think you're right. I think you're right. Oh, and one thing that's cool about it too is, uh, you know, and this is d- meant to be a feature, even if the artist's image isn't how it actually ends up. But on the left, you can see a, a, a port a little docking port, and that's supposed to be for ground vehicles, where if you wanted to be able to go from the lander into an excursion vehicle without actually stepping on the ground. I think that's pretty cool. That would have to be pretty high off the ground, though, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you'd have to. I, it would have to be something designed for it, I guess. You know, but I thought I thought that was that's what that's there for. Is what I read at least. But isn't that like how you would normally ingress it when it's docked to gateway? Yeah, maybe it's. Uh, oh, maybe they're just. I don't know. Selling it as a dual like use. A multi, <laughs> yeah, multifunction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which yeah, fair enough. You put a docking port on there, you can dock a rover to it. Great. <laughs> Still doesn't mean I'd want to open that cover anywhere near the lunar surface, but okay. And I I do like that part of the design is when you put the people on the bottom, you can no longer have the docking port at the top, which is like what we're used to with Apollo. Um, And it it makes it feel A, a little curbly, but B, like a little interesting and new. Not that spaceships are in any way required to be interesting and new, uh, but it, it does kind of lend it a nice air. For sure. Yeah. So as a fully reusable vehicle, um, this thing has a lot of additional uh, requirements that it has to fulfill. Because what what's the point of having a reusable vehicle that can't stay on orbit between missions, or you know, stay in lunar orbit between missions? And so um, the idea is that a because they aren't ditching a stage uh, on the way back, um, they're going to need to have a full uh, tank. Two, two full propellant tanks, because uh, it's uh, locks and hydrogen, uh, but it's going to need a full tank before it uh, starts its descent. And so it's going to be refueled in lunar orbit uh, by a vehicle built by Lockheed Martin called the Cislunar Transporter 
uh, right now. We'll see if they give it a better name. Uh, but it'll get refueled in the near rectilinear halo orbit, um, and then it will be able to descend. It'll be able to stay on the surface for 30 days. Um, but then once it comes back up to orbit, they're hoping to be able to have this thing just stay in lunar orbit and be reusable uh, over and over and over. And so part of uh, being able to do that is being able to store cryopropellants for long term. Now, that is a ULA uh, goal for a while, um, but not something that we've really seen anything convincing out of uh, Blue Origin. So we'll see. But they're developing this class of technologies called zero boil off technologies, which um, I would be absolutely shocked if it wasn't a decimal point followed by many zeros rather than actually zero. <laughs> um, not uh, indefinite cryopropellant storage, but uh, long-term cryo storage. Um, and some of these boil-off technologies are things like pumps that, you know, run at, at 40 Kelvin or whatever. So that is a major thing that they're going to have to develop because it's something that does not exist right now. We, we don't do long-term cryo storage, uh, on orbit or on the surface, really. Um, yeah. it's, it's a very, um, advanced kind of technology that will be very good to have in our back pocket, but it's definitely something that needs to be developed. So one final spec that I want to talk about before we, uh, go on to talk about the actual source selection document is that uh, this vehicle is capable of bringing 20 tons of payload down to the surface and back up to near ho or it can do 30 tons one way um, and then presumably come back up to orbit empty because it's you know the extra 10 ton uh, uh, payload there eats up too much fuel on landing to bring anything appreciable back up and uh, bringing 30 tons down to the surface uh, one way is probably going to be a mode that this thing flies in a lot if we stay on the moon the way that we would like to, um, because we're going we're gonna to need a lot of stuff on the moon uh, yeah. if we're going to be working towards a sustained uh, human presence. What was the name of the, of the moon base? Uh, the American moon base in uh, For All Mankind? Uh, Jamestown. Jamestown. There you go. So, J you know, Jamestown base is uh, more than 30 tons, but, you know, a couple of flights and we'll have a, a pretty decent uh, pretty decent base going. So the source selection document, we already mentioned that this is Appendix P. Um, their main competition was Dynetics with uh, Alpaca uh, 2.0. Uh, boy, you know what, guys? I really don't think that Dynetics was ever going to win this. I don't think that they had a vehicle for H or P that was good enough uh, to actually be a sane choice, unfortunately, because I yeah. love the name Alpaca. I love the architecture that they picked. Uh, just it. I don't know if I'm excited to see that they recompeted instead of just disappearing, or if I'm sad that I had to watch you know, a favorite get beat to shreds again. Um, but, you know, they applied, they lost. Um, they were commended for having excess uh, mass capabilities, um, for having a really good commercialization strategy. Um, their low-slung stru low structure gives them a lot of good commercial payload uh, compatibility. Um, and then the the way that their uh, their vehicle is, is super modular means that they could really put basically anything on the surface that they wanted to um, just really easy to, to change the way that the vehicle uh, 
actually works or change the vehicle's capabilities. Um, they were cited for, um, not really, uh, addressing crew support. Um, their vehicle basically doesn't account for the presence of an XEVA suit. Um, so like you can get to the moon, but you better have a suit waiting for you when you get there. Cause like, you're not going to be able to make mm. it out of the door in XEVA. They don't have a, a special hatch or anything. Um, they also didn't account for utilization cargo, um, which I, th- I think is just like mission specific, uh, cargo. Their proposed design also wasn't, it wasn't clear that it actually met the requirements set out. And unfortunately, Dynetic said that if you want us to do revisions on our design, it may result in cost and schedule impacts, which is like, I mean, of course that's going to be the case, but if they're saying it this way, I think it means that they are absolutely pegged like, all the way on the far side of the gauge, the mm. the dial is slammed all the way to the, uh, we are working as hard as we can. We have zero room for any changes because we're just barely squeaking in, uh, under the margin right now. And, and that, that really sucks. But so the, the fact that they don't clearly meet require, it's not clear if they do or don't. They like had this confusion between the capabilities of CDM, which we'll talk about in a sec, uh, CDM and crew vehicles. Um, the crew vehicle was the only one that met the requirements for the CDM mission. The CDM vehicle didn't meet the requirements for the CDM mission. So you'd be like, okay, well, maybe they're just going to fly the crew vehicle for the CDM mission. But the proposal like actually mentioned like both of the vehicles when they were talking about their ability to fly the CDM mission. And then on top of that, it wasn't like really clear what, which one of the two vehicles had certain capabilities. And so like, it just, it sounds like it was a mess. And I wonder if this is part of the, the, we are out of time effect (laughs) where this was, I think this was a poorly written proposal. Uh, I mean, it, it wasn't released publicly, I don't think, but like it, it wasn't a clear, a, a well-written proposal. And I think they just ran out of time to write a better proposal, which like it, it does not bode well. So again, you know, getting torn to shreds. Uh, there were, there were two other companies that actually applied, which is not surprising. Weren't there, they down selected to the three, uh, SpaceX, Blue Origin, and Dynetics for H. Yeah, and I think there was maybe seven ish before. That sounds about right. The other two, uh, were mentioned in passing, <laughs> just very briefly. Um, so the quote, this is a, a footnote on, I think, the first page. It says, Archer and Midwest were removed from the competition in January 2023 because their proposals were not fully compliant with solicitation requirements. So Archer, is amazing archer is actually um archer tactical group is the name of this company dennis i think you're gonna have to describe what this vehicle looks like because i don't think i can make it through a description of this vehicle (laughs) it i mean it's got it looks like a uh a a stealth bomber to me um it's got the the very uh very shallow angles and black kind of plating look to it yeah, so all that kind of beating radar technology for your cis lunar human landing system is going to be terribly important. 
according to these people. I guess if <laughs> Archer Tactical Group, I mean, if you're a hammer, everything's a nail. And so <laughs> they're applying for an HLS system and it's like, here's our warplane that you you yeah. should select for us. I mean, it looks like a stealth bomber from the year 2150 or something. That's the way mm. I would describe it. Yeah, yeah. It's got a different shape to it. Yeah, just uh, yeah. the kind of, uh, yeah. But they, and they, they even call this like division of them because I went to their website and like I was trying to find out about them and there's very little... Uh, well, there's not that much about them. There's even less about the other person, the other group that competed, which I almost said person, and it might really just be a person, um, for all I can tell. But yeah, this, they're, they they've got a Phantom Works division, and mm-hmm. so pseudo military. Gotta me. love it. Yeah. No. And so, like, oh boy, this thing. I mean, it looks very cool. It just it looks like it's uh, a movie proposal, not a actual spaceship but like there's no way that this is something that somebody would think could actually exist in the modern world i i I am beyond words one can dream (laughs) so so i found good no i was gonna say i mean like no offense to them but i can't imagine that they're they're that realistically keyed into what the space sector Mm -hmm. looks like and Mm -hmm. is doing Mm -hmm. well (laughs) yeah um so somebody on the spacex master race subreddit uh posted a comment I'm just going to read this comment. Uh, I could only find two employees on LinkedIn for Archer, the CEO and um, a project specialist named Sandy Ward. Sandy works for two jobs, Archer. And then the other one, uh, her title is medium slash psychic slash spiritual counselor at new medium, new energy medium, LLC. Yeah. Oh, boy. So, <laughs> now that doesn't I go well. did not yeah. know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> makes a lot of sense but i mean hey you know what no company that i've ever found it has ever been mentioned in a nasa source selection document even as a footnote so mm. not bad okay so then then finally i wanted to talk about like the bullet point in the document says project i don't know if that's right i don't think that's the right word but just like what is this actually going to look like in the future uh, nasa is spending uh 3.4 billion us dollars uh, or that's what they've awarded John Kaluris, Blue Origin's vice president for lunar transportation, has said that Blue Origin will um, spend more than that contract, than that award, um, the contract value to fully develop their lander. And they're saying that they're going to spend a total of $7 billion on this thing. Um, so that's $3.4 billion of NASA's money plus Blue Origin's money for a total of $7 billion. And one of the things that's mentioned in the source selection document that that NASA really likes about this is that Blue Origin's actually going to fly more missions than, than is required. So the idea is that they have to do two main flights to actually fulfill the contract. The first is called an uncrewed flight test, UFT, uh, and then the second one is Artemis V with people on board. Um, but what they're going to do is they're going to... Um, they're going to fly an early version of this lander first called Mark one. They're going to fly it twice. Once in 2024, wait, let me check my watch. That's next year. We'll see if that happens. <laughs> uh, 2024. And then the second one in 2025 and Mark one is uh, going to be less capable, but it is there specifically to mature key low TRL technologies. Uh, TRL is technology readiness level. So it's going to be, there are these key technologies that have a low readiness level, and they're going to be flying two missions specifically to get them uh, proven out and to get more data and to get these technologies ready and to go into their actual 
their actual lander. So their actual lander is going to be taking part in um, the Lunar Orbit Checkout Review, LOCR. Um, and I believe that that happens on the UFT vehicle, the Uncrewed Flight Test Vehicle. But by the time they get around to flying UFT, um, which is going to have to happen after Artemis 3, so 2024 and 2025 are like kind of bumping into, you know, not having that much time afterward to actually go, f- uh, fly, uh, UFT on time. Uh, they got, I mean, they got some flex, but like, yeah, you know, you can see why they wrote down 2024 and 2025, uh, on, on these dates. Um, but uh, UFT is going to be uh, uncrewed, uh, <laughs> as uh, seems obvious. They're going to be landing uh, at the South Pole. And um, because they've already flown these two Mark I missions, uh, they're going to be using a fully integrated, uh, like fully fledged vehicle for UFT. Um, NASA said that they're going to be burning down risk, which I, I like. And so they're going to be able to test all of the low TRL technologies or the low TRL technologies will already have been proven out. So they'll be using those. And then on top of that, they're going to be testing their ECLIS, their life support system, the ability to relight their engine um, to, you know, get off of the moon and uh, their autonomous piloting uh, through ascent and then transitioning back to uh, NRHO. And like, that sounds pretty darn cool to have two missions leading up to UFT, which is like the first uh, contracted uh, flight. Um, mm-hmm. And then their second mission would be Artemis V, uh, which is currently scheduled for around 2029. This blue moon lander is capable of four, uh, carrying four people. Uh, Artemis V is two people. Um, and it's going to be a week at the South Pole of the moon. I mean, a week is, is pretty long. The, the vehicle is in theory, uh, going to be designed to be able to support month long missions, like 30 day surface days, which is really cool. And like, ho- hopefully that will happen sooner rather than later. Uh, but it's first mission that, that won't be the case. Um, one cool thing that's not in the show notes that, that came up, I think this week, um, the, uh, the Centaur five, fireball we haven't heard anything about it yet because um it took them a week and a half to get access to the dome section where the the leak actually happened and it's mostly because they had a bunch of extra equipment um sitting on top of the centaur upper stage like you know their payload adapter and like all the flight things like (laughs) it's it's crazy that like they have just been digging through debris basically for, mm. for, you know, a week and a half just waiting to get in there. But now they've gotten in there. They, they have a pretty small region that they're actually concerned about now. And so they're um, narrowing in on what actually leaked, like where was the leak and what was the ignition source and doing, taking corrective actions on the flight centaur is still up in the air, but like, I, I don't think they're, I don't think they're likely to need to do that just because it's, you know, this was a test article that had been pressurized over and over and over. And mm-hmm. like, maybe it's an issue for long-term duration missions, but like for this use case, probably not an issue. We'll, we'll see. And, uh, it'll be pretty cool to see what, what they actually come out with as a, as a root cause here. Yeah. The interaction between it being a, like the, the test stand equipment and then the vessel itself is, mm-hmm. Like, yeah, there's a lot of interesting ways that this can shake out. 
So this week we got three short and sweet. Uh, back to the usual three. So what's the first one, Dennis? Capstone tests its navigation technology. The Artemis spacecraft Capstone, in a near-rectilinear halo orbit around the moon for the past six months, has successfully tested its GPS-like navigation technology. The CubeSat sent a signal to NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, or LRO, designed to measure the distance and relative velocity between the two spacecraft, and then converted the return signal from LRO into a measurement of both spacecraft's positions. This autonomous capability, one of the two principal objectives for Capstone, could be valuable for future missions to cislunar space and beyond. Next, uh, end of lunar flashlight. This is a bummer. Five months was not long enough for the lunar flashlight mission to enter its final orbit after launching with Hakuto-R. Debris in the propellant lines is suspected as the cause of the lower-than-expected thrust. The attempted sneeze maneuver, that's TM Ben Etherington, the attempted sneeze maneuver where fuel pump pressures were raised, quote, far beyond operational limits, while the fuel valves were toggled open and closed, was insufficient uh, despite intermittent thrust increases. Flashlight's green propellant design is a bit experimental, relying on manufacturing controls rather than propellant line filters, and it uses the new Ascent propellant. While the vehicle's laser reflectometer was unable to collect science data, it did check out successfully. And lastly, core of Roman Space Telescope completed. A central part of the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope's primary instrument was recently delivered to Ball Aerospace for integration. The so-called focal plane system, or the FPS, is the core of the Wide Field Instrument, or possibly WIFI, uh, if that's how they say it, uh, camera, which allows the telescope to take images of comparable resolution to the Hubble Space Telescope, but over a 100 times wider field of view. Once the FPS is installed in the WIFI, technicians will next integrate the instrument's radiators, planning to return the instrument to Goddard in the spring of 2024, where it will be incorporated into the rest of the spacecraft. All right, so let's move right along then to this week in spaceflight history. We have just two winners, uh, Chubby Jacozzi and Delta V Dan, and there might be a reason why we only got two correct guesses. It might have something to do with the clue, um, but we actually got a really good guess on why the clue was what it was. So we have a retconned clue this week, uh, which was Hex 105, Hex 105, and that clue refers to the 23rd of May 2016, which was the suborbital test flight of ISRO's reusable launch vehicle, or the ROV. And actually, it's the ROV slash or dash TD uh, technology demonstrator. So this is kind of an interesting thing. I didn't I didn't know how to characterize this in as few words as possible, but basically this is ISRO's attempt at a, it says reusable, it doesn't say fully reusable. So I don't think we're talking about the first stage, although we might be actually, but I'm looking at more of the second stage. That's kind of what this is about. But this, so this is at the very least a reusable second stage. Looks kind of like a little space shuttle, but quite a bit different though. So I don't think of like an X-37B, but sort of in that ballpark, but it uses some very different technology, the coolest of which was not tested on this particular test flight, but hopefully one day we will see it. So the cool feature of this particular vehicle, which didn't fly on this vehicle, is the uh, scramjet technology, which is something that uh, they want to incorporate into this upper stage. Uh, so this is pretty crazy. And it's also a cryogenic engine. So we're talking about a Hydrolox and I guess air breathing 
scramjet rocket engine. And I assume that we're talking about it's one engine that basically switches from, you know, air breathing to the onboard propellant, kind of like a Skylon would or a Sabre engine. Yeah. I mean, that's not something I found too much information on, but I'm assuming that that hasn't really been, I mean, I don't even know at what stage they are with that. Um, that's not what this is. This is basically just testing uh, mostly the vehicle itself, not the engines. Um, but that's pretty cool, huh? Like, yeah. I don't know how realistic that is because whenever you hear about a scramjet period i guess that's a difficult thing <laughs> to do but also going to orbit like i don't know that's that's pretty ambitious if i remember correctly we've talked on a show about like a prototype like engine or, or maybe even like a test flight that did try to do a switch like that but it's at the absolute like very very early stages right now that 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 switching idea that you're talking about are you talking about yeah you're not talking about anything that isro did though right no 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 someone else and i can't even remember what country yeah. or it wasn't what saber it was. either yeah someone might have even been like japan might have tested something that went from air breathing to not air breathing <laughs> um you know to propellant based apart from saber i can't think of what that would be chimera from hermes oh that sounds right we talked about hermes as recently as 395 Her hermes is the name of the company oh hermes yeah episode 386 another short and sweet there we go i believe that was what just uh, a ground test there as far as anything yes. like this in flight never been done mm -hmm. yeah so this is a pretty ambitious project uh and the scramjet portion will be the final test in uh you know the series of tests uh in order to develop this vehicle so getting back to the clue which was hex 105 yeah the clue might not make much sense to many guessers because we might have gotten the number of tests wrong. Um, apparently, there's only four, but we did have a guess by Chebertokosi who sort of retconned the clue for us. And the retcon is that we're talking about the number of test objectives for this particular flight, which are as follows. Validating the aerodynamic design characteristics of the ROV during hypersonic flight characterizing the induced loads during hypersonic reentry into the atmosphere, recovering the vehicle from the sea, assessing the performance of the carbon fiber used in construction of the nose of the vehicle, and finally demonstrating the first stage separation sequencing. So yeah, those are five key objectives. And mm. so I guess you can think of it as hex, which is one flight of five objectives. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And we, we tried to track this down because I wrote the clue because David was having a hard time coming up with clues. I wasn't feeling great last week. So I like, while they were doing the show, I was kind of like poking around and looking for clues. And so I came up with a clue, but I got it from Wikipedia. Uh, there's a Wikipedia page that specifically says there were five uh, tests and this was the first one. And then when David tried to uh, validate it this morning, <laughs> he couldn't figure out where I'd come up with it. And I found that page again, and now neither of us could figure out where they came up with it. Uh, it's a very old uh, edit on the on the Wikipedia page that put that in there, and it was like the page basically hasn't been touched since then. So it's just you know mm -hmm. lost to time. Uh, and I sh I should have validated it, but at least it wasn't like a pure figment of my imagination. <laughs> Um, but yeah, for real, Chubby really retconned this good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, one of five. Thank you. Yeah. I So, yeah, it should have been hex one of four, but this works too. So, yeah, uh, the RLVTD, uh, the Reusable Launch Vehicle Technology Demonstrator, let's talk about the design, um, at least briefly. So, it has a blunt ogive forebody, and that's a new word for me. Uh, are you familiar with that? particular shape ogive because it's the first time i heard of it only because the external tank on the shuttle was an ogive so yes, i only learned it yeah. in the last couple of years i'm just now learning that it's pronounced ogive <laughs> yeah well i looked it up and apparently that's how you pronounce it it's ogive i wasn't mm-hmm. sure if it was ogive or ogive or whatever but mm-hmm. it's ogive it's it's a great shape though it's it's very um architectural in that it is mm. it, it's like a hemisphere but if the radius for drawing that hemisphere was outside of the outside of the sun, like if you were to put a, uh, an arc around a center point and then just revolve that arc, but this is like half of that and the center of that radius is outside of the vehicle. I don't think it's necessarily outside. I think it could probably be inside, but for aerodynamic purposes, you put it outside, uh, giving it a, a point. But it just reminds me of like, you know, those lovely pointed arches that yeah. humans started building very relatively early on uh, in our architectural history. And like it was this big revolution where you don't need to do a hemispherical, like a round arch anymore. Like now you can do these pointed arches and they still work and they take up less space. Just the, the simplicity of this uh, geometry is really lovely. Yeah. But basically, like you said, Dennis, if you think of what the external tank looks like on the shuttle, that's what the shape is. And so, yeah, that's like the nose of the vehicle, but that blends into a D-section fuselage. So basically, that's where it, it kind of, I guess, reminds me a little bit also of the shuttle. The shuttle is not a D-section shape necessarily, but basically flatter on the bottom and rounder on the top. And you can kind of think of it like that. It does actually remind me of, and I've referenced this many times, the Hotel uh, vehicle, which was uh, the precursor to the Skylon concept. Mm-hmm. It has almost that same shape. Yeah, it's a D-section body. Um, and the nose of the vehicle is actually dropped down, according to the documents that I read, because uh, they want to... They are taking into consideration future crewed vehicles, and you want to have windows, and you, you want to have line of sight. So that's why the nose is actually dropped down a little bit. So it, it still has, you know, that kind of space shuttle, you know, somewhat look. Hmm. The vehicle itself is um, 1.5 tons, uh, 6.5 meters in length, and 3.6 meter wingspan. So uh, not super big. Uh, the airframe is constructed from aluminum. And if you look at the wings, and I didn't actually look up what, I can't remember off the top of my head what the shuttle's wings uh, the angles are, but this one has an 80 degree leading edge strake. So you have like the very narrow section of the wing, which comes down from the front of the vehicle and then angles out to a 45 degree angle main wing. So it's, you know, a very swept back uh, shape. The shuttle, I think is a little bit more blended perhaps, or a little bit more rounded. Yeah, I think you're probably right. But, you know, like overall, a somewhat similar look to it as all, you know, Delta wing vehicles are going to look and, you know, that's how they need to be if you're going to be uh, returning from very high velocities. And this also has twin vertical rudders in elevons. They had originally had just a single rudder, but that lacked control authority at high angles of attack. So they put two of them on there and then actually complicated things a little bit um, as far as control, but uh, still, you know, you do get better control. And it does have the elevons at the rear, just like the space shuttle. So uh, those are the control surfaces, uh, but also does have 12 RCS thrusters, um, which it needs at the higher altitudes. And the 
pitch control thrusters are on the top and bottom of the aft surface. The yaw control is in the aft side panels and the roll control is in the top and bottom of the wing surfaces. So those are all of your RCS thrusters. The thermal protection system, so this is interesting. It has 600 heat tiles on uh, the undercarriage. And I don't know if that's what it's normally called, but that's the term that they use. The undercarriage? Besides maybe just call, yeah, calling it a belly, but yeah, the it's undercarriage, bit. right? <laughs> yeah, the ventral side. Then as for the rest of the vehicle, it has a flexible external insulation. So this is like a silica cloth layer uh, with a blanket, and I never knew that term, but basically it's just a ceramic blanket. And these are things which, you know, you can just buy off the shelf. Um, it's what they put in like large mm. kilns and ovens and things like that. It's basically the thermal insulation that you use for things that get very hot. And so they uh, use that and they stitch it together with quartz thread. So this is all, you know, I think fairly typical and not super typical actually, but you know, um, I think we've discussed uh, these types of thermal protection systems before. And uh, yeah, that's what the rest of it is. It's not the 600 heat tiles underneath. But um, yeah, so anyway, I wanted to get into the navigation requirements uh, because this thing is supposed to autonomously land. Uh, that's an important feature here. That's no easy task. So the navigation requirements are actually determined by the landing accuracy requirements, which makes sense because that's the time during flight when you're going to need the most accuracy. So I guess if you get that right, you know, you know that you're well within your margin of error for everything else. Mm. So the requirements are a 50 meter accuracy along the runway and a five meter accuracy across the runway. 50 meter accuracy along the runway. That's interesting to me because could you not perhaps miss the runway, I suppose? Well, I guess if you're accounting for- right, That's over and under shooting, but I guess- but I think, I think it's, I think you calculate that as uh run out minus, or the length of the runway minus your required run out, plus maybe a little bit of buffer room. But like, what's crazy is the how- big five meters like five meters is actually pretty long and to say this thing only needs to be accurate within five meters across the runway that that's more shocking to me than 50 meters it's not that much and considering how large runways are no no that's that's really what i mean though is like five meters is wide this is a relatively narrow aircraft and runways are really wide like they don't look Uh, that wide uh. when you're on them uh, in an airplane, but if you're on them on foot, yeah, they are really wide. Like that, that's just, that's just more surprising to me than the 50 meters. Cause I feel like, you know, like a student, uh, pilot, 50 meters is really forgiving, but I feel like a student pilot could probably be expected to do about 50 meters long ways, but a student pilot should definitely do better than five meters across the runway. <laughs> I, I don't know. Chris, the pilot in the chat can tell me if I'm wrong, but like that just seems like my instinct. This is really forgiving across not necessarily long but sorry (laughs) (laughs) yeah some other parameters here right we need to talk about the altitude uh the accuracy when landing must be within one meter uh and the speed must be within 0.5 meters per second so those are uh the requirements for landing with this autonomous navigation and control and all that so pretty cool next we can talk about the closed loop guidance system right so how it actually does all this um and there's a and I'm sure well, we'll have in the show notes some links and there's one that gives like an actual visual schematic of how that works, which is far easier to follow. I don't know if I can explain it nearly as well as that, but we'll talk about the main inputs and then what they feed into and all that. So basically, um, you have what's called the MMC and that's the mission management computer and that's on board the spacecraft. Uh, that's kind of what takes on all this data, um, spits it back out, kind of, but we'll talk about that in a second. I don't know how to describe a closed loop 
guidance system in a way that doesn't get loopy, actually. There's probably a much easier way. <laughs> so we have the inertial navigation system. We all know what that is. Uh, but that's only used above like 35 to 40 kilometers uh, because the accuracy below that point is affected by the wind and other atmospheric effects. Then you have the CSAP. I don't know if that's how you say it, but it's the CSAP, which is a ceramic servo accelerometer package. And so this is, you know, a series of accelerometers and they are used during the descent phase of the flight when the air data parameters are less accurate. So you can see how we're basically using different sensors during different parts of the flight. Totally makes sense. And they're they're ceramic because they're in the in the heat shield? I, I couldn't find out why exactly that, but yeah, I mean, the heating on this thing, because it's so small, mm-hmm. I'm assuming that the heat loads are pretty not all the same across the vehicle, but they're not going to be low anywhere, if you know what I mean. Sure. Yeah, I buy that. Then we have a radar altimeter, um, and, that's act- and that's just active below two kilometers, so that's probably more for the final approach and landing. And then the FAS, which is the flush air data system. This is something that I think a lot of, I don't know if most regular aircraft have them because it's the keyword here is flush. So uh, this kind of works the same way that a pitot tube would work, except that it's not a tube which extends away from uh, the body of the aircraft. It basically sits flush. So you just have these little holes in the nose of the vehicle, and that's what you have on this particular vehicle. You have uh, five holes arranged vertically down the nose, and then you have four across. It actually forms like a cross shape. These are used below 35 and 40 kilometers uh, because you're in a thicker atmosphere. Uh, so they then become, you know, useful. And uh, those determine the angle of attack, the angle of side slip, the Mach number. But on this flight, they didn't feed into uh, the guidance navigation control or anything. They weren't part of the loop. They were just restricted to monitoring mode because uh, they were just being tested. But on future flights, they will actually be used in the control guidance loop. So yeah, that's the flush air data system, which is actually a system that I wasn't familiar with that term or that acronym. And again, I don't know how common it is on most aircraft, but it is on some. It seems that we're talking usually on maybe like high speed supersonic type aircraft because I can kind of see how it would be necessary and you wouldn't want a little pitot tube sticking out the front of the thing, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Pretty interesting. Finally, we have the GPS data and that is fed into the GAINS, which is uh, an acronym for the GPS-aided inertial navigation system. So this is where basically that system takes data from the MMC, which is the Mission Management Computer, compares that to the GPS data and then spits back like an error estimate. And then the MMC takes that and uses that to determine a better position speed and so forth. So like I would just recommend looking at the diagram on the website, which will be in these show notes, but uh, it's pretty cool. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, you're using GPS, you're using the FADS, the radar, you're using all these things at different parts during the flight in order to uh, bring this thing back. Except in this case, you're not using uh, the FADS in this case, because that was just for monitoring and testing. So I guess we can talk about the launch. So this launched atop a one meter diameter, nine ton solid booster. And I think that this booster might've been specifically made just for this mission. Uh, They said that they couldn't put it aboard the GSLV or the PSLV because they were not quote unquote available. But I don't think that's really the reason. I'm guessing that there's probably more to it than that. I don't know if that was the right word, because I don't think it was a matter of availability, but maybe more so that it just wasn't the right booster for mm. this particular mission because this actually is a booster which burns a little bit more slowly than most do. So I'm guessing that that had something to do with it because you needed a particular speed and and I guess the simplicity of a solid rocket booster makes things easier as well. Yeah, sorry, unless I'm um, I'm totally mis under underestimating the scale. This rock mm. this booster is 
significantly tinier than a PSLV. Yeah. That's the thing. So I'm guessing that they needed a slower acceleration for this particular mission, and and that booster might not be able to provide that. I don't know how you can how well those engines throttle, it, and it just seems much more complex than sticking it on top of a solid. You know what I mean? Mm. Since this is just a test, it's so sounding rocket. Big, the big old fins, yeah, yeah. I think I think available isn't as crazy as it might seem because like they only produce so many. If they're all, you know, if they all have a manifest and then on top of it this is kind of an expensive thing because you're not putting anything into orbit so you don't get any mm-hmm. ride along capability or anything like that and so maybe like having a dedicated launch a launch dedicated to just this vehicle and nothing else and it's expendable and like you that's it that might be yeah. pushing the availability even lower so I don't think it's crazy but yeah it might not be the best way to phrase it even if it was available that doesn't yeah seem reasonable exactly like i mean if it was available would they still want to use it because i wouldn't i mean mm-hmm. you don't want to use a perfectly good uh pslv for something like this when a little tiny solid booster will do and well, probably cost a whole lot less li- a little tiny solid but like also there's a lot of work that has to go into making sure that it, especially if it's got a different thrust profile like mm-hmm. this wasn't like a cheap alternative cheaper totally could be the case but like not cheap in context. Yeah, I suppose. I don't know how much easier solids are. I thought you just cut the grain a certain shape and voila, you got it. Yeah, I mean, maybe. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> but but like you still have to do the design and the validation and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have to fit these giant wings on it, the f- giant fins and do all the work to make sure that the wings are, or the fins are the right size and they have to make a very rigid launch like uh, the payload adapter has to be very rigid because you don't want this in flexing yeah interesting um so after takeoff the staging occurred at 56 kilometers climbed to a maximum altitude of 65 kilometers and of course that's just on momentum alone again there's no there's no engines on this thing um it just has rcs thrusters but that's it it reached a max speed of mach 5 which i think is exactly what they were going for that was their goal there um maximum temperatures were about 300 to 303 degrees Celsius on the nose and wing leading edges, um, which I also think is basically what the expected uh, heat loads would be. And it was tracked via two ground stations and a shipboard terminal in the, I think the Bay of Bengal or I'm pretty sure in the Bay of Bengal. It was definitely on a ship in the ocean. I just don't know enough about the geography and oceanography of India, but I think that that's what the Bay of Bengal is, right? (laughs) Um, And then it landed on a hypothetical runway in the Bay of Bengal, which is to say it just crashed into the ocean. But the idea was to bring it down as though there were a runway there. So I just want to mention last month, I think, Dennis, you read a short and sweet on Lex, which was the landing experiment, and that was a parachute drop test. Mm. So that was the second test in the total of four, so far as we know, just four of the tests in the development of this vehicle. And uh, there are two more that are planned. There's no timetable for those, however, which are the Orex test, which is the orbital return flight experiment, and then the Specs, which is the scramjet propulsion experiment. And the Specs one, I'll be very interested to see when and how well that goes because uh that is a very that'll be a i guess a first time ever that anyone's tested an engine in a scramjet in quite this way so mm-hmm. that is cool yeah keep it up israel <laughs> yeah so that's a quick little rundown of the first mission of the rlv called hex the first one of four pretty sure four <laughs> and not five awesome well thank you david that was a wonderful twist and i love israel 
And that's really cool. Yep. Can't wait till we're reporting on Orex and specs and then scrambling on Google to figure out when the heck did we talk about this? <laughs> this yeah, this yeah. We'll forget soon enough. <laughs> we always do. All right. Well, Ben, next week is the 30th of May to the 5th of June. Do you have a clue for us? Yep. Uh, next week in 1970, King to G8 is the clue. King to G8. I like that. Another clever clue from Ben that I have no idea what the answer is, but if you think you uh, you know what that what event that clue is referencing, you can shoot us an email at info at orbitalmechanics.com or you can come to our Discord and leave us a guess in our This Week SF channel. And good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right. So let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. And thank you to Launch Library 2, where we start our research each week. And we have this week uh, five events. I think they're all launches, actually. So what is the first one, Ben? All right. The first one is a very fun name that I like to say. It's Batter 8, B-A-D-R 8. Uh, it's a geostationary um, communication satellite uh, built uh, by Airbus, but it's being operated by Arabsat. Uh, batter 8, I can't, I can't decide in my head if it's batter as in cake batter or batter as in batter up, but <laughs> just it feels nice uh, rolling off the tongue. Okay, Batter 8 is flying on a Falcon 9 Block 5 on Wednesday, May 24th at uh, 03, 20 hours UTC. The window extends out to 06, 14 hours UTC. And that is like actually a launch window, I believe, because it's, you know, geostationary. They, they really can launch anytime in there. And that's not a problem. And they are going to be launching out of Slick 40 on the Cape. And next up, we've got a launch we talked about last week. This is South Korea's Nuri, their domestic rocket, that will be doing its third launch attempt after its first one was a failure and its second one was a success. And this will be taking the Nexat 2 and Snipe satellites, Snipe satellites A through D, so there's four of them evidently. And the launch will take place on Wednesday, May 24th with a window from 0854 to 0954 UTC, uh, launching out of the Naro Space Center, which is unsurprisingly at an island in the south of Korea, South Korea. And then after that, we have another launch that we talked about last week, actually. Uh, so this is the launch of Progress MS-23 or 84P. So this is a Progress resupply mission to the International Space Station. It's launching on a Soyuz 2.1A liftoff time is at 12.56 and 6 seconds UTC from the, the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. And so not too long after that, you can watch MS-23 Rendezvous and Dock with the International Space Station. Uh, that's also going to be Wednesday, May 24th. Coverage begins at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on NASA TV. And the docking is actually scheduled for 12.20 p.m. Eastern Time. And then we have an interesting uh, private crewed launch, and this is Spaceship Two doing their VSS Unity 25. So back to flight after uh, you know, the last flight was quite a while ago. And so, right, Virgin Galactic. So this is a suborbital horizontal launch, and the uh, the crew consists of uh, one of their test pilots, Michael Masucci, will be the commander, and their pilot will actually be the shuttle commander, uh, CJ Sturkow, and uh, Beth Moses and three other passengers will be flying. And so this launch is slated to take place on Thursday, May 25th, 
with a window from 1200 to 2200 UTC, flying, literally flying, and then launching out of Spaceport America. After that, on the 26th, we have the launch of a Soyuz 2.1B with a Frigate M upper stage. And this is launching Condor FKA number one. So this is a civilian radar Earth observation satellite uh, designed by... I don't know if I can say this, um, NPO Machino Stroyenia, mm. uh, the civilian counterpart to the Condor E satellite, so which is a synthetic aperture radar satellite. And uh, let's see, that's launching at 2114 UTC on the 26th, and it's launching from Vostochny Cosmodrome in Siberia from Cosmodrome Site 1S. And it's going into a sun-synchronous orbit. Mm. So uh, I guess just know that that's happening too. Don't see too many Vostochny launches. All right, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Okay, which means it's time to deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jiggies and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Chris, a.k.a. Steigarfield, Colin, Jonesy, Dave M., Chevy T., and Delta V for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We'll see you all next next week on Robert. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you soon.